that God was leading our church in very specific ways. And one of the non-negotiables is that it's a church that prays. It's not just what we do, but who we are. This is a church that prays. And so today we felt like it would be a great idea to kind of put those things into motion. And so I'm going to give a brief teaching on just prayer. We're going to go through, um, we're going to go through personal prayer first and then intercession prayer. And then after that, we're going to actually have a time to pray together as a community. Is that okay? So it's going to be a little bit more interactive than it normally is. I hope it'll be, you know, a good chance for all of us to get our feet wet again in intercession. So we actually live in a world now where certain things that shouldn't make sense, they make sense. So for example, the first, I'm going to just show you some hashtags because I'm super young and hip and relevant. Um, can we... Uh, Get the first slide up. Pixar didn't happen. Who here, moment of truth, who here has used this hashtag before? All right. A lot of shameful. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a very common thing for us to think, think about. Um, Pixar didn't happen. I, I think it needs to be said that it's actually not true, right? Things happen, whether you took a picture or not. But we live in a generation. We are a generation where actually if you don't, don't document it, if you don't broadcast it, it's almost like it never actually happened. And so it's about showing things. It's about, uh, you know, whether the substance is there or not, you have to show something for it. And it's less about substance and internal reality. And it's more about showing. It's about presentation. It's about telling people about it. Second, it's a generation that is okay with using this term, humble brag. It's an oxymoron, by the way. <laughs> it shouldn't make sense. You should just do hashtag brag, right? <laughs> it's not humble. But this is a generation where you say like, oh, man, I got all these job offers. Pray for me. It's such a, such a hard time in my life. Hashtag humble brag, right? It's just bragging, right? But it's a generation where this makes sense, right? You can actually humble, humble brag. And I feel like particularly in Asia, this is part of our culture too. It's like, it's wrong if you're like, I'm so awesome. Like I am doing great in my career and I just got a promotion. Like it's kind of like, you don't really say it. You wait for somebody else to say it. Like you're kind of just waiting quietly and somebody's, Hey, didn't you get the promotion? Man, so many amazing things are happening. You're like, Oh no, no, it's nothing really. (laughs) No, not me. I'm just a humble servant. It's still bragging. Right. And finally, it's a generation where FOMO makes sense. Fear of missing out, in case you guys don't know what FOMO stands for. Fear of missing out. It's a generation where there's like, it's not like an um, excitement-fueled desire to do things, but it's actually like, I feel like I'm going to miss out on things if I don't put myself out there, if I don't do what everybody else is doing. I feel like I'm going to be left out of something really important. Now, this is not untrue. But if we live as a generation that believes in FOMO, like actually you believe it, um, we become a generation that doesn't have confidence that the Lord will lead you to everything that you're called to. Does that make sense? It's like it kind of erodes this idea that you have a good shepherd, actually. And he knows what's in store for your life. He knows what blessings are in store for your life. And... You can't miss out on those things as long as you are seeking the Lord. 
It's not like the Lord is getting ready to dump all these blessings on you. But man, shucks, you missed the boat and I can't bless you now. And now you you missed on your calling or you're missed on something important for your life. No, we actually believe in a God who's sovereign over our lives. A God who has plans, a future, a destiny ready for us. And as believers, yes, we can use this, but we can't really believe it deep down inside. Like we're going to miss out on something really important in our lives if we're, if we're not putting ourselves out there. So we live in this kind of generation where all these things make sense, where it's actually the air that we breathe. It's the culture that we live in. And so when it comes to prayer and developing a prayer life where you don't have somebody broadcasting what you're doing in your prayer closet, you don't have somebody giving you likes for what you're praying for and how arduously you're praying. You don't have somebody looking over your shoulder to make sure that you're doing these things and kind of showing what you are doing in the secret place. When it comes to building up a prayer life, it requires a very different set of values. It requires in some ways, counter cultural values to, to really go against the grain, go against the culture that we are just kind of living and breathing. So often when we pray to God about our calling and our part in the bigger story, instead of actually asking God, what do you want me to do? Perhaps a better question for us to ask is God, who do you want me to be? Does that make sense? Because often when we're thinking about, okay, what is the ministry plan? What is our direction as a church? All these things. The first, our first reaction is going to be, okay, so what do we need to do? Let's fix it. Let's do it. Let's function. And yet perhaps God is trying to get at something a bit more important, which is what kind of person is he trying, uh, trying to make, make us become, I guess. What kind of people are we to become? It's different to worship and to be a worshiper. It's different to pray than to be a prayer. uh, Is that a word? A prayer warrior. A prayer, prayer warrior, somebody who prays. Okay. There's no real word for it. Um, it's different. It's so one accentuates an action. It's like, okay, I'm going to worship from four o'clock until four twenty-one, and then I'm done worshiping. But if you live as a worshiper, no matter what you're doing, where you are, whether there's good background music or not, or if you have somebody who's hitting the notes perfectly or not, you are still a worshiper and you're going to be worshiping wherever you are. In the same way, when it comes to prayer, prayer is not just something you do. It's actually a lifestyle. It's who you are. And so I want us to take a moment. I don't have slides for you for this particular section. I want us to read from first Samuel chapter 16. First Samuel 16, it starts the beginning of the Bible. It's right after Judges, right before Second Samuel. First Samuel chapter 16. First Samuel chapter 16. Here's some rustling paper. I think the rest is all scrolling through your phone. All right. So I'm going to be reading from the NIV. I'm going to be reading from verses 1 until verse 13. The Lord said to Samuel, 
How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Stop. So there's actually a king that is serving as, as such. And God has rejected this king. This is King Saul. And God has a different plan in store. And so he's sending the prophet Samuel to go and anoint this future king of Israel. Okay, so we continue verse two. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely. So Eliab is one of the sons. Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ready with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Amen. So this is the story and the point in, in the Bible where we see Samuel, appear, uh, where we see David appear. And as far as you guys can tell from this story, David is a nobody. So imagine this is like hot shot prophet of the hour coming into your small little town called, called Bethlehem. And they're preparing the sacrifice and this feast. And everybody knows that the hot shot is in town. Everybody is like, oh my gosh, something big is finally happening here in a little town. And so they're preparing this huge feast and they're having this feast and they forget this one little guy. He's still tending the sheep out there in the pasture somewhere. He is not just forgotten by people in the town, but he's forgotten by his own family. So it's fair to say that this little guy wasn't really neglected just this one time, but he was consistently neglected by his family. Very overlooked, underappreciated, kind of like, look, we're going to have a party here. We don't really need to call David, you know, just let him tend the sheep out there. Like nobody will really miss him. It's okay. You'll never know really like what he missed out on. But the Lord, as far as, as far as we know, he was very aware of where David was. 
Although all the attention, all the bustle, everything that was happening that was exciting was happening in Bethlehem, God's eyes were actually on a little shepherd boy out in the pastures in rural Bethlehem. And let me submit to you, this is the place of David's formation. Where we see his prayer life, where we see his worship, where we see his faith in the Lord, where we see even God building and grooming a king, somebody who's going to lead an entire nation. It happened out in a little pasture. I don't know about you guys, but I would be super discouraged if imagine, you know, I was leading worship and the only people that would show up are sheep, like animals, like, like imagine day after day. Imagine I just came here every day and I just led worship every day. And the only people who could hear my songs, no matter how good or bad they are, are sheep. And that is my life. And that is my life as far as I can tell. Like, it's not like, okay, one day I know that the Lord is going to make me, you know, a musician and I'm going to play in King Saul's presence. And then, you know, I'm going to become the king and I'm going to have this tabernacle. And he didn't know any of that. As far as he was concerned, he had 70 years ahead of him of singing to the sheep. That's all he thought. That's all he knew. He didn't know what God had in store for him. And yet that hidden place was a perfect place for God to forge a person who would not bend to the will of man, a person who would pray whether people are there or not, somebody who would worship whether people were there or not, simply because he was praying and worshiping before an audience of one. And this is the power of the hidden place. It's not despite the fact that people are there. It's because people aren't there. Because people aren't there. That's where your real ministry unto the Lord happens. So if, if I were to give an example, we used to have a Wednesday morning prayer watch at K1. And Wednesday mornings, most people are at work, right? Most people are at work. So a Wednesday morning was a watch, like a two-hour worship session that we had for people who usually work in the evenings, afternoons and evenings, and so they would be free to come to this. And yet Wednesday morning was usually a very sparsely visited worship set. So there'd be times where, okay, we're going to wake up at 630. So we're there on time to set up chairs and sound check and all this. And then we're going to get there and we're going to practice through the songs and we're going to have the team briefing. We're going to be ready. And then when, you know, 930 hits, we're going to be ready to go. And then 930 comes and no one shows up. And then the team has to make a decision. The team that's ministering has to make a decision. Is it still going to be worth my time? The next two hours, is it still going to be worth it for me to give my everything? As if there were 300 people in this room. Because the Lord is here. And the whole point is, I'm going to minister to the Lord. Whatever prayer I pray, the Lord is listening. Is that enough for me? And so every week we would have, it wasn't empty every week, but... You know, like there'd be a lot of, there'd be a lot of weeks where it was empty and the whole team had to make a decision every week. And then once it's over and you know, like 1130 and we were packing up and we're ready, getting ready to go. We have to make a decision next week. Am I going to show up at 820 in the morning to set up, 
to sound check and to do this all over again. That's the decision that you had to make. And so this is where a lot of the hiddenness, this is where a lot of the prayer, this a lot, uh, the place where a lot of the ministry unto the Lord happens. It is in the hidden place. Perhaps you don't have a Wednesday morning K1, but perhaps it is in your own, you know, prayer closet. Does it make a difference to God whether you show up there or not? Does it make a difference to God whether you pray a certain day or not? Or is that the first thing to go? So let me quickly move us on. The few things that I believe set up David to be someone who is after the man, uh, the man after God's own heart is number one. David was a one thing kind of person. So if you look in Psalm 27, four, you see the, the very famous verse. One thing I've asked of the Lord, this one thing I seek to, you know, minister, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And this is a great verse to kind of put up on a wall, to put up in your desktop background, all of that. You guys don't know that the surrounding verses are all like if an enemy encamps around me, even if my foes are out to get my life, it's in the midst of that, that he prays this. So the context of that verse is super important because it is very easy for us to be about the one thing when things are good and well, when things are going smoothly in your life, when there's really not much distraction But then the moment that there's hardship in your life, that is when, whether you are a one thing kind of person or not, is tested. Whether in the midst of hardship, when you are surrounded by enemies, is that going to be the time when you turn to the Lord and you say, look, there's still one thing that I ask for and I long for. And it's not for my comfort. It's not that you would preserve my life. All those things are great. But there's still the one thing, the primary thing that I am about is to minister to you, to gaze upon you, to seek you in your temple. And that is enough for me. And so this is one of those things that really marked David as a person who would really seek after him, who really Whether he was in a good situation or in a bad situation, he was still about the one thing. The second thing was that he was a Godward kind of person. I'm just going to give this Bible reference in Psalm 132 verses 1 through 5. We see David in the midst of all of his responsibilities as someone who's leading an entire nation. He loses sleep over one thing. And that is he's obsessed with this idea that the Lord doesn't have a resting place. I have a resting place. I have a palace. I have a place to be in, but the Lord doesn't have a resting place. And that bothers the heck out of me. Like that makes me lose sleep. Like the fact that the Lord is not being exalted around the clock, that bothers me. I take that very personally. And so in some ways we see how David kind of put his own needs and own desires aside And he became obsessed about the things that God was obsessed about. And that is a posture, a prayer that is actually a great blessing to the Lord. Because often when we go into the place of prayer, we go in with this idea of what am I going to get out of it? Right? You go in there like, okay, so maybe if I pray instead of 20 minutes today, I'm going to pray for 30 minutes, 30 minutes. And I think I'm going to get something good out of this. You know, like I think the Lord will answer now. I think I am going to get, you know, that breakthrough or this prayer answer or whatever it is. But we go in with this idea of like, it's going to be an exchange. 
I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to do whatever it takes for me to actually get what I want, which is the blessings of the Lord, but not actually the Lord. And so we go in with this idea into the place of prayer of like, what are my needs? And that's going to drive me into the place of prayer. And yet David was somebody who was losing sleep over what are God's needs? What does he need? What is he doing? How can I bless him? And that was one of the things that made him a man after God's own heart. And the last thing, you guys know a bit about how um, his story kind of ends. You know, he messed up big time. He was in no way, nowhere close to being a perfect person. Nowhere close. Like he fell into adultery and then murder. And then it just, things kept piling up because he was trying to hide his sin. And yet when he was confronted by prophet Nathan, he was teachable and he was repentant. I don't know about you guys, but the higher up you go, the more you feel like is at stake and the harder it becomes to repent, the higher up you go. So can you imagine the top person in his entire nation? He's being confronted with his sins and he has two options. He has the option of continue to try to hide these things from the Lord and from people or repent, bear the shame of that, but be right before the Lord. And that is what he ultimately chose. He remained teachable, malleable, correctable, no matter how how high up he was. And he repented genuinely before the Lord. Now, these things are important when we're talking about prayer. Because we don't want to approach it just as an activity. I don't think that's what we're after here. I don't think, okay, this, these are the mechanics of prayer. You do this, and then you do that, and then you have to wrap everything up. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Otherwise, it's not valid. You know, like, I could give you a play-by-play, you know, of what prayer is and what it should look like and the methodology and all those things. But before we even talk about those things, we have to talk about what kind of person prays. What kind of person doesn't just pray once or twice, but has that as a lifestyle. So one more thing that we're going to talk about. This is from a book titled After God's Own Heart. And this is what the author says. Most believers are so disconnected from the reality of God's astonishingly, frightfully lavish love for us that they totally miss out on 99% of what they could experience in their everyday walk with Christ. They treat God like an employer, a business partner, a judge, a traffic cop, anything but a lover. They rarely feel his passion, love, or pleasure. Perhaps they tell themselves that feeling it is not at all that important as long as they're obeying his commands, reading the Bible, and keeping up the spiritual disciplines. But as a consequence of this dryness, they rarely feel love or pleasure of any kind. This is super important for for us to cover today before we take a time to pray because we have to debunk this idea that prayer is not enjoyable. Like prayer is a duty. Like there's something I have to do grudgingly it's like medicine like it's good for me so i have to you know take it i have to do it but it's not something that i ever would choose for myself it's not something that would gravitate towards when i have a free minute it's like it's like i have to grudgingly do it because this is the means to get something that i actually want there's no way to sustain a prayer life that way so the first lie that has to go is that prayer is like 
torture. This idea that prayer is torture. We have to debunk that lie. We have to come to the place where we realize we're actually speaking to a person. Imagine every time I was speaking to Yumi, for example, before I actually talked to Yumi, I would have to be like, okay, fine. I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to her and I'm going to do it for five minutes. I'm going to just going to grit my teeth. Okay. I'm just going to, I'm going to do it today for five minutes on the clock. And as soon as the five minutes are done, then I'm done talking to imagine we approach any of our relationships or conversations that way. And yet we do that with the Lord, right? We're not like, Oh my gosh, Yumi, how are you today? Man, how was your week? It's not like that. It's like, okay, ready? Ready? I'm going to go and I'm going to do it. Okay. And it's, uh, it's going to be good for me. It's going to be good for her. I just have to do it. I'm going to grip my teeth. I'm going to do it. How can you build a relationship on that? How can you? Uh, yeah. How can you build a relationship on that? We have to debunk this idea that prayer is just, we're talking to thin air. Maybe the Lord is listening. Maybe he's not. Whether we do it or not doesn't make a big difference. We'll never really know. But the Lord is listening. And he's a person. And he has feelings. And he, I'm sure he still is blessed and honored when we grudgingly go to him in prayer. But man, like how different would it be for us and for him if it was something that we actually enjoyed? And it became a conversation. It became a life-giving lifestyle. Not this thing that, oh man, it's the cross I have to bear. No, (laughs) it's not the cross that you have to bear. The whole idea, the whole reason Jesus bore that cross and the whole reason Jesus died on the cross was to make a way to tear the veil, right? And so now we have full access as sons and daughters to go into the throne of grace. It's supposed to be a privilege. It's not supposed to be like, Ah, fine. I guess I'll, I guess the the, the veil is torn and I can now approach his presence and okay, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to go there for a full five minutes and then I'm going to get the heck out of there because that's not where I want to be. No, that's not the point. The point is Jesus' sacrifice opened up a way for us to have the privilege as sons and daughters to approach him in his throne of grace. And that's where we pray. So very quickly, What are some things that hinder our personal prayer lives? I'm just going to quickly go through them because otherwise we won't have to have time to actually pray. What are some things that hinder our personal prayer lives? The first is this idea that prayer is not practical or productive. Have you ever heard this? You know, like, all right, I'm glad you prayed, but are you actually going to do something? Right? You're like, what do you mean? (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) Prayer is practical and is productive. And yet sometimes we approach it as like the last resort. Like, man, I've tried everything in my power. I've talked to every person that I know for advice. And I guess, fine, I guess I'll have to pray now, right? It's like our last resort. Prayer is not practical nor productive. Second lie is, I don't know if God is listening. So like whether I pray for five minutes or 30 minutes, Does it really matter whether I'm actually pouring out my heart or not, or I'm just clocking in today? Does that make a difference? Whether I, you know, whatever it is, you can fill in that blank. There's this inherent lie somewhere in the back of our minds that, you know, like this prayer thing, is it working? Is it true? Is there actually somebody listening? And this is live. I don't know if God is really listening. Third, God accepts me, but doesn't like me. Imagine... 
I was to think that about myself when I talked to Yumi again. Sorry, Yumi, to put you in the spot. You're never going to sit in the front ever again, I think. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, imagine, I'm like, okay, so Yumi just tolerates me, like barely tolerates me. So I'm going to make this as quick as possible. And we're just going to you know, say what needs to be said. And then we're, like, she doesn't enjoy my presence. If that's the way that I believed Yumi thought about me, and that's the way she felt about me, then of course I'm not really going to want to spend time with her. And this is the way that we think about God often. Like, yeah, he accepts me, kind of grudgingly accepts me, like as a package deal, like he had no option, you know, like he loves us. And I kind of like slipped in there. And so he has to like me in some way. No, God loves you right? He is crazy about you. He loves spending time with you. Do you ever want, like, would you ever want to spend time with somebody who's like, uh, I guess, yeah, fine. We'll meet this week. Uh, can we make it just like 10 minutes? Like, let's not make it 30 minutes, just 10 minutes, just a quick, you know, coffee. And then we get out, you know, um, if you thought, you know, somebody didn't want to meet up with you, like even leading into it, you wouldn't really feel great about it, right? And yet that's the way that we approach prayer and we approach God. And then lastly, prayer is a business transaction. Sorry, a lot of the people in the back can't really read that. Prayer is a business transaction. This is actually the way that a lot of people, and I'll, I will say in Korea specifically, approach prayer. It's a business transaction. Like, I'm going to clock in morning prayer for the next month, and I'm going to get what is due to me. Like, this is the price I have to pay. It's not money. It's going to be through time spent in prayer. And that's the cost I'm going to have to pay. And then I'm actually going to get what I deserve because I paid for it. It's this idea that it's a business transaction. There's very little room for pleasure for relationship, for conversation when you approach prayer in that way. So what are some truths that build our personal prayer lives? The first is from James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. That's what the Bible says. That's what God says. And so that must be true. The prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. To the second lie of, I don't know if God is listening, we can quote 1 Peter 3, verses, uh, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. God is actually leaning in, not like, all right, I guess they're going to pray. No, like the moment he chooses to pray, that's when he's actually leaning in. Like he's trying to almost eavesdrop on that time. Like he's leaning in to hear your prayer. He pays attention to prayer. To the lie of God accepts me, but doesn't really like me. We can quote John 3.16. It's not for God so tolerated the world or for God so grudgingly accepted the world. It's because God so loved the world. He is the most jealous, most passionate God ever. He is crazy about his children. He's not an indifferent, distant father who's like, oh, I guess, I guess I have to listen to my child because they can't. No, he's running out to meet us. And he's a God who loves his children. And lastly, instead of being a business transaction, if we were to change that paradigm to prayer is friendship. 
John 15, 15, it says, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned I have made known to you. This is not the posture of a look. Okay, God, I'm here in prayer. Just give me your marching orders and I'll be off. No, God's like, let's talk. Let's talk. This is what's on my heart. This is what I want to see in your family. This is what I want to see in your life. This one I see in your workplace. This one is what I want to see in your church. Let's talk. Let's talk. Let me give you my heart. Let me show you my intentions, my motives, even my, my, my purposes and my goal. But we need to talk. It's not just, all right, here's what you need to do. You need to do, do A and B and C. All right, go. That's the posture of a servant. The posture of a friend is one who leans in, not just to what you have to say, but what he has to say as well. And so we're going to stop right there. We still have more, but we're not going to get into that today. Hopefully this is a little bit helpful when it comes to prayer, because these lies are often very subconsciously believed, very subconscious. And, and you see it because it begins to erode your prayer life, your ability to sustain something. I don't know about you guys, but if pizza was good for you, I would eat it every day because it's something that I enjoy. Right? You wouldn't have to be like, Susie, come on today. Please, can you just please eat pizza for five minutes? Like, please. No, I'd be like, give me that pizza every day. I would wake up and I would want pizza if it was good for you, right? So in the same way, if it's something that's enjoyable, you should be able to sustain it. It's something that brings you life. It's something that you want to do. It's something that you don't grudgingly do, but it's something that, that brings you great joy and delight. Um, maybe pizza was a, a bad example because it should, it's not very life-giving. But what I'm trying to say is that it's supposed to be a pleasant experience. It's not supposed to be this like drudgery and like, oh, I have to pray today and I have to talk to him again. And I did it yesterday. Do I need to do it today? The moment you fall into that is, is when you have to realize like, okay, I, uh, something's wrong there. I'm believing something that is not true, something that's false. Um, Prayer cannot just be sustained by self-discipline. It will be required, yes, because there will be days where you don't want to do it. And that's just human nature. There will be days where you don't want to do it. And you're going to need self-discipline. But self-discipline is not going to take you through 50 years of living life on this earth, sustaining a vibrant prayer life, if it's just self-discipline. I don't know about you guys. I have self-discipline for like, an hour and then I'm done. Like I got nothing after that. So for, for someone like me who has very little self-discipline, I have to truly believe that spending time with the Lord is enjoyable, that it's life-giving. Like I, I need to spend time with the Lord. That's what would make me carve out time in my busy day in order to spend time with him. It's not out of self-discipline because I have like close to zero discipline. I have like very little discipline. It's like, I have a lot of things to do, but I, I just really need to spend time with God today. Like I, like, I really need it. I feel like I'm dying inside if I don't. Like, like, I need a breath of fresh air. Like, I need to meet with him. I need to hear his voice. I need to remember who I am. I need to remember th the truth of who he is. I need to hear him. I need to be close to him. And that's what drives me into the prayer place. It's not this, like, ah, fine, I'm going to have to pray today. No. It's this, like, I, I need to spend time with him. Like that, that's what I really need right now. And that's what will drive all of us, you know, in this house to not just pray once in a while, but actually sustain a lifestyle 
a prayer, when we truly believe that spending time with him is not an obligation, but it's actually something so enjoyable, so life-giving, that it aligns you back to where you need to be. This is the one place where you can bring your heart before the Lord and hear what's on his heart. It should be a, a place of life.